Welcome, everybody. It's great to have you with us for another edition of the Midtown Pastor Podcast. And uh, this is Randy Tron. I'm the lead pastor over at Granny White, and I've got some very handsome men with me this morning and some other congregational pastors. Guys, introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah, Elliot Cherry from 12 South. I'm Brant Panetti over at East Nashville. Dave Burden over at Creep Hall. Are you guys not feeling handsome this morning? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, I want to give you a, a little bit of news. It's kind of like an announcement. This Sunday, when this is being released, we're also releasing a video version of a worship service to allow you not just to uh, sing and to experience that part of worship, but also to hear a sermon. And we decided as a team that it would be good to continue our podcast for a couple of reasons. One, we want to go a little deeper into the text and give you a chance in your own personal study to dig around in the passage that we're preaching on this week. But also, this time together really represents something very significant to us as pastors at Midtown. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Midtown has been built on is the belief that pastors are at their most dangerous and most unhealthy when they're in isolation. And so one of the joys of this call for all of us, I know, is that we're not alone on this staff and in this call. And these other pastors that we get to labor with is such a part of the strength of Midtown. So getting to dive into a passage with multiple voices and multiple folks uh, is not only a deep joy, it's what we do every week. We're not alone, even in sermon prep and how we do ministry. So this is a representation of, of one of the tenets of, of Midtown. I mean, it's a, a fundamental conviction I know that we all share about Scripture is that God tells us it's not good for us to be alone. And that's true about us in, in every arena of our life. And if we believe that's true in, in all of these different places, it's why we do small groups. It's uh, why we encourage people in community that as people who are leading in the church, we want to be practicing that exact same value and living out ourselves what we're calling our friends into with us. Yeah, we are a part of a body. And that body has many parts, and all those parts are very, very valuable. And so uh, I think even in approaching how we do the preparation and teaching of Scripture as a body, it always amazes me how even though we're approaching something that we say that there's truth in here, and that truth is true, God's uniquely created each of us and given us the minds that He's given us and the voices that He's given us and the experiences that He's given us really shapes a much more robust message and way that we bring that to all the different types of people that we get to minister to. So it seems profoundly essential to me uh, that we do it this way. Yeah. So we're hoping that you uh, grasp a little bit of this vision of what we so deeply love, but there are guys, pastors on our staff that aren't on this podcast. Who are those guys? We got Jonathan Ash, who's over in the Napier community with his family, talking about and dreaming about with people in that community, what it would look like to plant a church there. Yeah. And, uh, Two guys that have are somewhat on the 12 South team a little bit, uh, Matt Avery, who will be planting Congregation 5, Lord willing, in September, and he's got a core group, and he's praying and Zooming with them, and he's got his own podcast, actually, to address the needs and the vision of Congregation 5. And then we just hired Daryl Jones, who will be an assistant pastor at 12 South. He has joined this team as well, and the strength and the fellowship is is growing. Yeah, those are great guys, and some people have asked me, why aren't they on our podcast? And we're in a studio that's not big enough to do some social distancing and have everybody here. 
So we're trying to give you guys the lead teaching pastors at each of our campuses a chance to come in here and help us dig through the passage. But we hope as Midtown grows, so will this studio. <laughs> That's right. We're, we're adding on as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, talking about adding on, let's add on another passage that we have uh, dived into with these podcasts. So the passage today, I think, is in Luke chapter 12. And Yep. Dave, would you read it for us? Absolutely. This is Luke 12, 32 to 40. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return home from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night, or towards daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So Elliot, you preached this passage this week, and maybe you can kind of just give us an overview here. Yeah, I expect that since I preached it, there are no more questions about it. Zero. (laughs) Yeah, we've covered every... Every possible side road. and uh, It is amazing, though, that uh, what Jesus says in about 30 seconds, uh, <laughs> it takes us hours to tear apart. Yeah, and it's a, it's a beautiful little section of Scripture where Jesus has a little teaching, and then he tells a parable, and the parable is meant to expound on the teaching and give some color to the teaching. But essentially, he, he talks in the opening section about how generous God is with his people And then the way that God's people are wired in having their hearts go after treasures. And in order to expound on that, he tells this little parable about this master that goes away and then is coming back to his estate. And the focus of the parable is the servants that are awaiting their master's return from the party and how those servants are interacting, how those servants are waiting, how those servants are anticipating the master's return really ties back into the opening section of teaching, uh, what Jesus says. But it all is kind of centered around the main thesis statement would be verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Everything, parable and teaching, kind of centers around around that. One of the things that I really appreciate, Elliot, that you did as you kind of led us through this is that you were pushing us to think about which verses we would include. Because so often when in my own Bible reading, I stop when I reach just headings in the Bible, and I forget that those weren't always there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, those, are, those are not the inspired words of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And that so often the teaching of Scripture flows together in a way that I can forget. And I just really appreciated the way that you kind of challenged us to use these verses and see the connections mm-hmm. between them. Well, we have to take that first verse, or really the second verse, and dig into uh, this whole idea of treasures. Talk to me about this, guys, because there seems to be a weird order here. In the world that we live in, we often think that where our hearts are 
that's where our treasures are, that our treasures follow our hearts. But it seems that Jesus reverses that and now says where my treasure is, that's where my heart goes to, almost as if the treasures are leading my heart. Did he mean to do that? Yes. <laughs> it makes me think, honestly, people at East Nashville probably heard me share this already when we've talked about treasure, but growing up, my grandma loved to call her grandkids her treasure. And I don't think I realized that until I got older, the significance of that, but that was just her name. Oh, you're my treasure. And then I got to live out the experience of what it meant to be somebody that she treasured, that she directed her heart and her care and her time toward toward me and toward her grandkids because we were her treasure. Yeah, and I think anytime Jesus is speaking about the heart, it's worth leaning into. There's this glimpse into the way that we are made is what he's saying in verse 34 is that if you want to learn about your heart, start with the treasure because the treasure will actually lead you to your heart and show you that your heart, I think Randy, you said this a few weeks ago, is like a puppy. Like it was made to treasure something, to follow something, to crave something. And what Jesus is giving us a glimpse into is literally like back to creation, how we were made in God's image. We were made with hearts that are insatiable at craving and desiring and treasuring something. And our hearts are treasure quest hunters. They are always going on treasure hunts to find the object that it was made for. And that's one of the things that separates us from everything else in creation, right? We can talk about different desires that animals have or this or that, but but something that makes humans unique is our ability to treasure something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when I think about treasure, like I can like something, but to treasure something has an element of I'm captured by this. I have, I have like a sustained attention and appetite for it. I treasure it. And I obsess about it, or I think about it, or it fills the void of the free time of my mind. So I think that one of the things that I know is true that Scripture makes really clear is is that I have to be taught what it is that is to be treasured, that my heart was made to treasure. It will have an object to wrap itself around, but... My heart is oftentimes prone to wrapping itself around the wrong thing. And we've all grown up in homes and culture, and, and we even have an enemy uh, that wants our heart to treasure the wrong thing. And so it's it's really important to understand and to be led to a place of what is truly worth treasuring and what is my heart heart's affections truly not only made for but to have, you know. You know, the heartbeat of this entire passage, and we're going to come back to it, is this idea that we've been made in the image of God. And so this pattern that's being revealed to us by Jesus is also a revelation about our Lord, that he has treasures and his heart is wrapped around his treasure. And the most amazing and shocking and bold thing about this entire passage is that Jesus is declaring that we're his treasure. This outrageous claim by God that he has wrapped his heart around us, that he has put us before him, We're going to come back to that in a minute, but I'd love for you guys to just spend a little time talking about, just at the very beginning, why is that so hard for us as a people to believe that we are a treasure? Being a treasure or experiencing being someone's treasure has been so tied in my life to performance. So I had to do something in order to be treasured by someone. 
Yeah, your your whole life is wrapped around that idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, you do, and and therefore you become someone's treasure. And so, school, sports, being accepted and by your friends, like it seems like everything is wrapped around becoming a treasure. Yeah, the reality that we see painted throughout Scripture isn't that Jesus came and did what He did to make us a treasure. Um, he came and did what He did because He did treasure us. He didn't die to make me lovely. He died for me because I was lovely to him. And so I think it's it's profoundly hard because the economics of Jesus' love is so radically different than everything I experience. And the truth is, is that I make so many mistakes in my life. I sin so much that if me being a treasure is based on me doing something, then I can't be a treasure uh, because I, I'll blow that before 8 a.m. most days. So I think that's part of why. What time do you get up? (laughs) (laughs) Part of why it's hard to believe that the Lord treasures me that way because if I'm just simply looking at my ability to live up to that, I don't live up to it. So do you think, Dave, that shame would tell me that I'm not a treasure? And is it possible I could spend my whole life trying to become a treasure, trying to triumph over my shame through accomplishments, through achievements, through possessions, trying to prove to the world that I'm worthy to be treasured? I ask you that question, but I'm really asking you to talk about that because it seems to be a toxic, normal thing in the culture that we live in that everything we do is fighting to become a treasure. Yeah, I mean, I think when we talk about even waiting for the master's return, part of what's promised us in the return of Christ is glory, that our hearts were designed to share in his glory and in what it means to be a part of his family and his kingdom. And so when we even say my heart was made for the master's return, my heart was made for glory. And so my heart treasures that, and I want that. And we live in a world that basically says that glory is available to you now, but it's not coming to you through Jesus. It's coming to you through you. And so everybody's kind of climbing the glory tower, (laughs) trying to outdo one another and get the glory. I mean, C.S. Lewis writes about this in his book, The Weight of Glory. You carry that weight around in your chest, yet we're, we're waiting on it. I refer to it as having the weight of glory without the weight. And we're waiting on that, and we're waiting on Him because the glory that we were made for isn't something to be had apart from Him. And what you're speaking about, I think on some levels, is I'm incapable of declaring myself a treasure, like that I am treasured uh, but I work so hard hoping and craving that the world will or that I could do enough that would, like, maybe my verdict will be enough, but that treadmill never stops. And so usually what that looks like is either A, I'll do more, or B, I'll be more. And those things all are really coming back to because I want to feel a certain way about myself. And that's what's so hard about what you're saying is it's hard for me to believe that Jesus treasures me because I don't treasure me, <laughs> because I've equated treasure with do more, be more. And Jesus actually invites us into freedom by saying, no, no, you you are treasured. And I've proven that to you. And so it really comes down to, yeah, like you were saying, Dave, where am I getting my glory from? Who do I believe is actually capable of declaring that glory to me? Let's state a couple of things from the very beginning, and I'll just get you guys to speak into this. If I choose all the wrong treasures in my life and I belong to Jesus, Am I still his treasure? Yes. I mean, think about this. It's if I get this all wrong, what can I do from this point on that 
makes me stop being his treasure. Mm. Romans 8 would say nothing. Mm -hmm. So if nothing is at stake, because what I'm trying to state is that what we're saying right now, for those of you that are still trying to become a treasure, you're going to hear... When Randy says those of you, he's talking to the three of us in this room. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's all we move back and forth from treasure to trash. But where he says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also... It's not a statement of freedom. It's not a declaration that we are treasured. This becomes now just another thing that I've got to put on my back to carry so that I can become a treasure. That I better choose the right treasure so that my heart goes in the right direction so that I'll get treasured. And what we're declaring from the very beginning, this whole passage is about how we are the treasure of God. Because of the work of Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection, his ascension, and soon to be his glorification, we are his treasure. Right? It's, it's, dude, we're all it, laughing because yeah. we're just this is this can't be said enough because mm-hmm. the world is telling me I'm not. So. Yeah, I in preparing for the sermon, I shared this with the pastors earlier. I was declaring that in, in the end of the sermon for those of you that have watched it that we are the treasure of the master. And I, as I was writing those words, I literally thought to myself, I don't know if I believe that. So I had to go to other passages of scripture that confirmed it because it's almost too good to say out loud as one of our. Friends of Midtown, George Landalt would say, it's too good not to be true right. because the best things are the most true things. And it's like, when you say it, Randy, even I'm, I'm getting choked up even hearing you guys talk about it because it's like, there's no way this is true. But it's what scripture pounds over from Old Testament to New that God has set his affection on a people, not because they were worthy, but because he is. And that's an incredibly vulnerable spot to open up for people to say, hey, could I, could we put down all of the things that I try to do to prove that I'm a treasure and stop and ask God, do you see me as a treasure? Hmm. The moment of that question is in some ways a terrifying question because it opens us up to the reality that it's something that I have to receive. Hmm. And the question is, is God good enough to give me something that good? And what you're saying is, yes, he is. And Yes, I am a treasure, but there's an invitation that goes along with that. We have to be willing, I have to be willing to step into the fear of letting myself ask the question that I'm truly asking so that I can receive the answer that my father gives me. So let's belabor this point uh, because <laughs> I really believe that the TNT, the nitroglycerin of our faith is not what I'm bringing to Jesus, but me grasping what he's bringing to me. Mm. You were talking about on your sermon, uh, the Michael Jordan What's the name? Last Dance. The Last Dance. And when you think about a man whose life is so dynamic that they created a documentary about him, and that documentary has you so excited, it's easy for me to imagine that Michael Jordan is a treasure. Mm. What's hard is when I have that standard of what a treasure is, and then I look in the mirror, and now I've walked into the world's economy, and Jesus is blowing up the world's economy. So a simple question for you guys, does God just love trash? Mm. Is there something about us that's treasure worthy? Or is God just God and he's just capable of doing what none of us could do, which is just loving a bunch of messes like us? This is always the most uncomfortable question that you ask to me. Because on one hand, I see in scripture that, yeah, I'm unworthy of the love of God. And yet he does love me. And he has set his affection on me. And I think what I want is... I want to find something to hang it on to explain it. And at the end of the day, he loves me because he loves me, but it it is because he finds me lovable. 
I mean, we've already said it that we were we were made in God's image, and so just that fact alone inherently means because we bear His image in a unique way that all of the rest of creation doesn't. We have profound value. We are not trash, and we know that because of sin, that image was not completely lost, but was tainted in every way and shattered in many ways. And so I think that we are profoundly lovely to him and loved by him. We aren't trash because when I think about me becoming a treasure, like earning becoming a treasure, then, you know, my sin is always before me. And so it's like, well, if it's based on my effort, then then I'm hopeless. But one of my mentors said one time, my Jesus knows what sin has done to me, not what sins I do, because I do sin, but the fact of what sin has done to me. When I think about it that way, what I realize is I think he looks upon us and says, I, I see how deeply fractured our, all of creation is, but you are because of what sin has done to you and the sin you do because of that. It's out of a complete love and affection and a commitment to, I want you with me. I mean, think about Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. He's just, I can't wait to be with you and you be where I'm at and me be where you're at. Let's be together. All of that, you know, is is coming from this place of, I, I know what sin's done and I know what I'm coming to do to sin. Or you can know what you treasure in, in any respect, how far you're willing to go for that object, what you're willing to pay, what cost you're willing to sacrifice. And I think about, you know, falling in love with my wife and doing long distance and the, the ups and downs and like, you know, that was minimal in, in retrospect in a lot of ways, comparatively speaking, but like I was willing to pay a cost because I treasured what was on the other side of it. And so I don't know if this answers your question, Randy, but I don't know that I can explain why, but if I just measure the treasure by how far Jesus was willing to go, uh, what cost he was willing to pay, then it's an astronomical level of treasuring for what he was willing to pay to get it. Because as we talk about being treasured by God, really this whole passage is about the return of Jesus and how that's connected to not only us being treasured, but us also building treasures. And so I'd like for you guys to talk a little bit about why does Jesus coming back, why does that matter to us? Why does that play such a significant role in our lives as Christ followers? One of the things that comes to mind for me is that so often when we talk about the spiritual realm, it can sound like it's divorced and detached from my everyday life. We can even talk about, people can talk about Jesus as a good ethical teacher, as if his goal was to give us a handbook of like how to live moral lives. And what's so amazing about the idea of Jesus returning, the fact of Jesus returning, is that it's this collision between a spiritual reality and our physical reality and the promise that those things, they're fully integrated now. But there's going to be a day and a moment when we're going to see Jesus face to face. And everything that he's promised and taught is going to come true, and there's going to be this connection and continuity with the way that I see and understand my world, and then the way that I see and understand him fully. And I'm going to experience being treasured by him in a way I can hardly even imagine now when he comes back one day. Yeah, and this parable is not the only place where that collision brand happens. I mean, Jesus is adamant throughout all the Gospels in so many of his teachings and parables. Paul is adamant in just about all of his letters. Jesus is coming back, and it's not a 
theology of the New Testament that is meant to numb us or cause us to disconnect the present reality with the future hope. Jesus and the New Testament bring those two things together in a way that is saying, you have to keep this this reality that Jesus is coming back kind of ever before you, because it will affect almost everything you do while you're waiting for that day. But it is not. this is not a one-off where it's like, wait, he told that one parable where the master comes back. Is, was he really serious about that? It's like he is adamant that he has gone to the Father now, but he's coming back. Somewhere in one of Lewis's writings where it talks about that those who are most anticipating the master's return and most anticipating all of the things that are promised with that and him coming back, that they're actually the most effective in this life, that they become agents and purveyors of the kingdom that is to come. Because although we are awaiting a lot of things that are connected to the return of the master, we already have the first fruits of that in the spirit. And we are the ones, uh, we, we, you know, we're taught to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I can't make his kingdom completely come, but I can be uh, someone who is putting out the hors d'oeuvres of the kingdom, living into what is this kingdom going to look like in the here and now? And so, we're the, the servants of the master who are getting ready for the wedding feast, um, and no one who goes to a wedding would say that all of the preparations that were done the months before detracted from that day. They actually enhanced it. So, we're the ones who are living a picture of, even though it's it's not a full picture, the picture of what is to come in our relationships, in our work, uh, in our friendships, in every area of life. So, we won't have time in this podcast to go into all the different views of the end of times, um, the eschatology of a lot of different theologies, but they all conclude with the same idea that Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back for his church, and that's going to be a glorious day, new heavens and the new earths. And if we pick up the lens of that and actually look through that lens to our life today, it actually impacts the way we live our lives. Let's look at this story and see why the master's return actually impacted the way these servants were living their lives and what can that teach us about preparing our own hearts for that? Yeah, I think every command that Jesus gives for these servants who is you know, the church, God's people, it's us— they're all connected, very connected, very explicitly connected. The way that the servants are acting and interacting at the home, at the estate, expresses how those servants feel about or what they believe about the master's return. They're excited. They're hopeful. They're anxious in the best way, like waiting on Christmas, you know, for Christmas morning to come when you're a kid. It's like they are excitedly waiting with hopeful anticipation that they can't believe their master's about to get home. That's why they immediately open the door when he gets home. That's why their lamps are lit. We want this to happen. And so what they're doing while they're waiting expresses how they feel about the master coming home. Jesus seems to always do this. He uses a negative to prove a positive. He said, if the owner of the house had known at what hour a thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. If if you're that alert to protect your treasure from being stolen, how alert will you be when the treasure is being brought in? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he even acknowledges it may feel like the waiting takes a long time. Because he says in verse 38, even if he comes in the middle of night or toward daybreak. And so we see Jesus, I think, being so kind here and acknowledging that for these servants, it may feel like the master is taking a really long time, but that doesn't have to take away from him coming back. It actually 
helps us build our anticipation as we eagerly look forward to the master coming back. Yeah. I would say that some of the most mature Christ followers I know have made peace with what I see these servants have made peace with, which is living with unfulfilled desire. We live in a world that says, this is what your desire is about, and you don't have to wait at all for it. You can have it fulfilled, and here's the path. And part of what being a Christ follower is, is knowing that I'm going to live this life with a degree of unfulfilled desire, and that's normal. And that's okay. And in fact, like Dosaki's guy, you know, stay thirsty, my friends. Like the fact that I'm thirsty is a good thing. I might I make peace with the thirst and I actually see it as a sign of maturity. Like the fact that I'm not gonna sub in something less. Yep. The, the master treasures me and this is what my heart treasures, and I will wait. Yeah, and the biblical word for that is waiting. Yeah. You've made peace with the waiting, and it's almost, and and I've been spending some time in in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, the the saints that have gone before us who were radical messes of people, but their faith is celebrated, and the theme throughout all of Hebrews 11 is really the theme throughout Scripture. God's people have always been waiting. They have always been waiting. The, The patriarchs and God's people in slavery were waiting for the promised land. The people in the promised land were waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah came, and now God's people are waiting for him to return. Like, start to finish, it is one of the most common words throughout the Bible. It is good to wait for the Lord. And Paul, in his letters, wait, church, wait for the appearing of of Jesus. Wait for the glory that's coming. Wait in these momentary afflictions for the glory to be revealed. It's this. It's the practice of maturity, Dave. One of the marks of a disciple is what these servants are doing, is they are practicing uh, waiting in the tension of what's not yet true. So this uh, story is a bit scandalous. If you want to get some inside scoop on this story, go listen to Elliot's sermon. He did a great job talking a little bit about culturally what this story meant to the original hearers. But there's something very scandalous here. It's the idea that this master comes in and instead of sitting down and being served, he puts on an apron and actually has his servant sit down and he serves them. What is going on here, guys? This is the upside down of the gospel. And what's so interesting about this story is there's not a reveal where the master says, actually, I'm a servant in the sense that he is equal to the servants that have been waiting for him. He always remains the master, but even as the master, he's willing to serve. And that's true about our Jesus, and that's the kind of life that he invites us into, but it's what he's consistently showed is, is true about his kingdom. Man, Brant, that's so good, because I think what you're saying is, if we get back to the idea that where my treasure is, my heart is also, the way I put the right treasure in front of my heart is first to know that I'm treasured. I first have to let Jesus serve me before I can even consider serving him. And if that's true, and I fully embrace that I'm his treasurer and that he washes my feet by going to the cross and fills me up at the banquet table through the power of his resurrection, talk to me now about how do we wait? How, how do we wait as treasures? What does that look like here in Nashville, at Midtown, in this season of our lives? What does it look like to follow the Jesus who puts on the apron and serves and now be servants that wait? I think coming off of what Brant just said, and you just said, Randy, that one of the things I can't avoid in this passage is, is that Jesus is saying, you need me to serve you. 
that's such an offense to my ego and my pride and to that other ethic that says do something to be treasured. <laughs> and so one of the things that I have to do more often than I would ever want to admit is, is I daily need to be sometimes moment by moment of every day need to be reminded words, truth from him. I treasure you, Dave. Uh, I love you. Your identity and your value do not come from this. They come from me. And if I don't hear those words, I'm going to go get those words somewhere. And so my need for him to serve me often, once I get that affirmation and that truth, it's almost like if I'm literally just waiting for the treasure, but I don't have some of it now, I can't wait. I've got to snack on it. I've got to be fed a little bit right now so that I can wait for the whole enchilada. I've, I've got to have that now. And then, you know, it's hard to work on an empty stomach, right? Like I can't go out and do the things that the master cares about and love in the way that the master loves or do my, my work or my parenting or any, whatever, fill in the blank without having that first. So I'd say that one of the first things I have to do is I have to not let him serve me once. I have to let him serve me all the time. Hmm. It's what he says in the upper room with his disciples when he's washing their feet, which is, by the way, a, an image that you know is displayed here in this parable of the master getting on his knees and serving the servants. And he says to Peter, when Peter says, you know, you'll never wash me, and he says, if, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. But then he says, you're already clean, but I still need to wash you every day. You're already clean. I've already done that. I've declared you clean. But it's what you're saying, Dave. You've got to let me keep serving you that will not only let you know how clean you are, but will let you know how treasured you are. And then that changes entirely the way that we would engage in our world. And I think one of the things that's most on display in this passage is the way that power is used in a way that serves other people. And it takes me back to Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes. I was looking over this morning in preparation for this time. And it's just such a radical way to talk about using our power, that meekness is blessed in the kingdom of God, that people who are persecuted are blessed in the kingdom of God, that it's such an upside down way of engaging in our world. And one of the hardest things to do in life is to lay down your rights and your power, especially when you believe that you're a person who has been wronged and has every right to insist on your rights. And what Jesus invites us to here is to a totally different way of using our power, to using our power like he uses his power, which is for the benefits of other people. And if that feels a little bit like dying, Jesus says, okay, <laughs> now, now, he says, yeah, now you're on the right track. Mm, take up your cross, yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, the, uh, the amazing thing that we can draw out of this passage is when I know I'm treasured and I know that my feet are being washed by my Lord, I want to participate in that and washing other people's feet. But also it's true that when I don't feel that, I need to go wash feet to be reminded that he is washing my feet. So there's this weird cycle of I actively wait serving the Lord to remind myself that I'm his treasure, but also when I'm reminded that I'm his treasure, then now I want to act like my Jesus. I remember years ago I was with a youth group and we were down in Jamaica on a mission trip and we had served in this orphanage, and it was just one of those kind of weeks that Jesus just showed up and just, you know, we got to love on kids. And we were getting in the van to leave, and one of the kids uh, jumped out of the van 
and grabbed his suitcase and threw it out in the middle of the orphanage and opened it up and started giving all the kids all his stuff, literally emptied his pockets. And he got back into the van in a pair of flip-flops, shorts, and a t-shirt. That's it. And we're like, what are you doing? And literally, I swear to you guys, he looked at us and he says, I'm going home to my father's house. And in his house, there is plenty. That knowledge allowed him to give everything he had away. And I think about the challenge Jesus has given us in this, that when we understand these things, he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. It brings us to what the world may consider an insane love that acts crazy. But in in the kingdom of our Father, it's sanity that he calls us to. Yeah, and I'm imagining these servants at home, like keeping their lamps lit, and one of the servants' lamps goes out. Let's call him Dave, just, you know. Uh. Um, (laughs) But the idea that like what you're saying, Randy, about we may need to relight each other's flames from time to time to remind each other, like, no, 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 he's coming back. He's coming back. He's coming. You're, you're going to want to see this. And how, when we get to serve each other and do that and participate in it, it reminds us of the reality that we're treasured. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm keeping my lamp lit because the master's coming home to throw a party. Like, it's just this, this cyclical nature of my lamp does go out. I may need you to relight it, but also in relighting it, I remember why I was doing it in the first place. And it just feeds the, the system. It feeds the maturing of waiting. Like, I'm not waiting alone, first of all. It's what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, why we built Midtown this way. And the whole idea of hey, sometimes I may need you to light my lamp to remind me. Sometimes I may, del- I may need to light your lamp to remind me that all this is true. I love hearing you guys talk about the joy of that. That like is coming through so clearly as you describe this kid in, in the middle of an orphanage or Elliot, what you're talking about. And that can so easily get obscured that this becomes about, well, it's my duty to wait for the master to come back. And it may even at times look like a similar thing but the experience of it is so different and that Jesus is inviting us into so much more than living out of obligation, but into the joy of anticipating him coming back. Into the richness of the new life that he's given us. Mm. And that is uh, counterintuitive, isn't it? Mm. So Ellie, why don't you pray for us as we bring this time to an end? King Jesus, uh, we long for your return. We long for the day when our faith is turned to sight and we behold you face to face. We long for the day, not only to see you coming home, that we would open the door for you, but that we would feast and dance and laugh and sing with you and with our brothers and sisters in the new creation. And so Jesus, uh, give us patience for that day. Make us watchful waiters for that day. Make us Make us able to wait by having us feast, like Dave was saying, on uh, little little appetizers, little snacks of the kingdom to come that may look like good meals with our friends. It may look like solitude and time with you. It may look like serving our neighbor and looking for people to serve to keep their lamps lit. Give us the power to wait well. Give us the power to look out the window to see our master's return as we wait for that day and long for it. Uh, We love you, Jesus. Come quickly, we pray. In your name, amen. Amen. Hey, folks, just want to remind you that even though we're not meeting together as a congregation, our small groups are still meeting. 
In fact, they're meeting on Zoom platforms as well as other social medias. I want to encourage you that if you're not in a small group, this is a great time for you to join a small group and jump into getting to know some of our folks and being encouraged and maturing in your own faith. So hopefully you'll take advantage of that. Go online at midtownfellowship.org and there's lots of opportunities for you to join a small group.